Many of us have kids and we're familiar with the ways of a child, but I'm not. I, I am, I don't have kids and, and I, I look at my cousins or my nieces and nephews and I try to understand them a little bit, but I, there was this book that was number one New York Times bestseller book, uh, you know, along the lines of the Seven Habits books. You heard of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Well, I was recommended a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective Toddlers. And I, I thought the book was so interesting. You know, I picked it up and I was scrolling through it and I was just fascinated by some of the things I learned about toddlers from this book. And I wanted to share with you, I mean, you already know this, but me as, a, as, a, as an innocent young chap who doesn't have kids yet, I, I don't know about toddlers, but I found out some very, very unique things. And let's, let's go through these. these. These are really helpful for the sermon today. Number one, the seven habits of highly effective toddlers, if I like it, it's mine. That's, that's a pretty good habit, you know. That's a good, that's a good worldview perspective to develop there. Uh, number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. All right, that's another, another one. I, I kind of like that habit there. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Okay, these toddlers, they're, they're pretty smart kids, you know. Number four, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Number five, if I saw it first, it's mine. Here's my personal favorite. Now, again, there's seven, but my personal favorite is this one. If you are playing with it and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. That's a good one. That's a good one. But by and large, the most effective habit of a young toddler, and I, I'm really learning from this. Number seven, if it's broken, it's yours. That's good. That's good. You know, children, they really know what they want, don't they? They really know what they want. They know that, that they like candy. They know that they like toys. My cousin Connor would say he likes baseball. He knows what he likes. They know what they want. And they also know what they don't want. They don't want vegetables. They don't want curfews as they get older. They know what they want. They know what they don't want. You know, I think it's safe to say that in our culture today, uh, our worlds sometimes often revolve around our kids. And this has both positives and negatives to it. Uh, I think on the, on the negative side, I think sometimes our kids can oftentimes usurp a parent's authority and they can overrun the house and, and go on to be very undisciplined later on in their adult life. And I think that's very negative of our world revolving around kids. But there's also a positive to what we are seeing today, and that is that I think our culture today values children much more so than in times past. We value children much more so than in times past. You say, well, how, how do you know that so? Well, uh, there's a story about a 19th century American politician, the son of John Quincy Adams, no less. And he went fishing with his son one day. And his son kept a diary and the father kept a diary. And, and record has it that these diaries are still in existence today. You turn to the son's page on the day that they went fishing. The son writes, went fishing with dad today. The best day of my life. The best day of my life. If you walk down the, the museum aisle and you go to the father's diary on the same day. It says this, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. 
I think that the value of children has been increasing over time. That's, that's a good thing. We are not stepping on children as much as times past. And you know, when you read your Bibles, uh, oftentimes we may not recognize it, but especially during Jesus' time, children were very often overlooked. And children were very often stepped on and looked upon with disdain. They weren't valued. They, weren't, they definitely weren't looked at as an example of wisdom or as an example by which we should follow. But my message today is not to stop being a child, but to start being such a child. To start being such a child. And that is the message of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 18. Just as in the 19th century, so also in the life and times of Jesus, children were repeatedly devalued. Especially by the disciples. They, they, they weren't concerned with children. They were the followers of Jesus Christ, Messiah, King of Israel. They were concerned about power and about authority. Power and authority. They had no time for duck-duck-goose. They had no time for child's play. They wanted to be great as followers of Jesus Christ. Take a look at your Bibles. Matthew chapter 18 Verses 1 to 4. The disciple Matthew writes this and also is going to be quoting Jesus here. He says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask again that you would open our eyes, open our ears, that we could understand your word, comprehend it, and apply it appropriately to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take a look in particular at verse 1. At that time, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I, I kind of speculate a little bit. What, what would prompt the disciples to ask this question? What would prompt them? Well, there's a number of things that might have prompted them just before this passage in Matthew. If you look at Matthew chapter 16, about verse 17 or so, Jesus is interacting with Peter, and he says to Peter that Peter's going to get additional authority, that Peter's going to be given the keys to the kingdom. This is a, this is a recognition of Peter's extra authority as a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you go a little bit past that, in Matthew 17, starting passages there, you see the, the transfiguration of Jesus, and, and Jesus singles out three key disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they are the ones who are given special authority, the special opportunity to go up and to see Jesus be transfigured on the mount. And then just prior to this story that we're looking at here today in Matthew 18, just prior to that, Peter and Jesus are discussing about the authority of kings, whether or not they have the authority to tax or not. So authority, power, political 
authority is on their minds. The disciples have been thinking about this. And they're concerned about their authority. They're concerned about their greatness. What will their authority look like in the kingdom of heaven? And they're looking for one. They're saying, who? Who is the greatest, Jesus? Tell us. Who is the one that will attain honor, that will attain authority? If you look at Matthew 18 and compare it with Mark 9 and Luke 9, they're all, they have the same story there written from three different perspectives. And Mark and Luke, in the same story, indicate that the disciples were really disputing about this. They were arguing about this. They were arguing amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And the, and the text in Luke especially seems to indicate that, that they were unsure of the conditions that would give them greatness. In other words, they were unsure what Jesus would use to say, you get this authority and you get that authority. Much like if you were working in a company, ten employees, and all of you were going for the same promotion. And you didn't know how the boss would decide. What grounds, what, what, would think, what things would he point to and say, this is why one of you ten is going to get the promotion. That's exactly what's in mind here in this story. The disciples are unsure what grounds are we going to be measured by so that we can achieve greatness. What grounds? And oddly enough, Jesus has already talked to them about greatness. He's actually already indicated the grounds of greatness. They just chose to ignore it. Let's look at three grounds right now. First, if you, if you hold your spot there, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Take a look at what Jesus says regarding greatness in this passage. It's up on the screen as well, so maybe you don't have to turn there. Sorry about that. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Persecution, greatness. That's one of the grounds. One of the grounds. One of the grounds of greatness is your ability to endure persecution, Jesus says to the disciples. Okay? Look at the second one. Matthew 5.19. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever breaks one of these, one of the least of these commandments, he's referring to the Old Testament law, and teaches men to break them, teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? There's another grounds. It's sound teaching. Demonstration of the Old Testament law. Demonstration of God's law. That will also get you greatness. And now, again, the disciples had these teachings to rely on as they're disputing. But there's a third and the third is what I think they're missing most of all. And this is what we're going to look at today. Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. There's been no greater man than John the Baptist, Jesus says. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Is greater than John the Baptist. The one who is least is greatest. Now we come to the paradox. The one who is least is greatest. Jesus is indicating servanthood. He's indicating humility. He's indicating a letting go of one's rights, of one's status, 
of one's desire for power, of one's desire for prestige. He who is least is going to be greatest. And this, I suggest, this third element here is what the disciples are so obviously missing. They're missing the lowly, the humble, the servant-minded grounds upon which Jesus will judge greatness. And how do I know this? How do we know that, that they're missing this? Because they're discussing it. Because they're discussing greatness. You can't, you can't possibly discuss, oh, who will be the greatest? And, and, and wonder and dispute and argue amongst yourselves and have the perspective of a servant or of, of lowly reputation. Their question suggests that they're already missing it. But Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't scold them. Instead, what he does is he's going to begin to build an argument. He's going to begin to build an argument which will demonstrate the answer to their question. Take a look at verse 2. Look what he does. Then Jesus, here we go. He's, he's heard the question, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? And then Jesus called a little child to himself and set that child in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, now, I, I don't know about you, but this response strikes me as very, very strange. And actually, it should, should strike all of us as strange. Why is it strange that he would respond in this way? Any, any ideas? Why, why is it odd that Jesus would make this statement following their question? Because he doesn't answer the question. They're talking about greatness. What does Jesus start to talk about? Entrance. They're talking about power, about authority. And Jesus' first response is about getting in the kingdom. What it takes to enter. You say, well, did Jesus not hear them? Did, did he not understand their question? No, hardly. Again, he's building an argument. And this is the foundation if we're building a house, he's laying the foundation upon which he's going to erect the answer to the question. And what does he do? He grabs the little child. He puts, them in the, puts that child in the middle of these disciples' view. And, and at this time, Jesus is he's hoping to invoke sentiment within the disciples. He's hoping to invoke feelings within the disciples. And what are those feelings? Well... Take a look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. What, what, just, just past where we're at right now, look at Matthew 19, 13. What was Jesus hoping to invoke in the disciples? Matthew 19, 13 reads, Then little children were brought to Jesus, that He might put His hands on them and pray. And what does it say? But the disciples rebuked them. When fishing with my son today, a day... Wasted. The disciples rebuked them. Jesus doesn't have time for children. Come on. Get out of the way. This is no time for child's play. We have the Messiah here. He's going to institute power and authority in Israel. This is no time for children. Move along. 
Jesus knows what he's invoking in them. He's invoking this, this rage within them. They say, well, no, we don't have time for these kids. These kids are a waste. We don't care about them. Let's move on to greater things, to more important things. D.A. Hagner, a theologian, wrote this, and I think it's very unique. I think it really captures what the disciples were thinking. He says, the social insignificance, if not the innocent unselfconsciousness of the little child was the very antithesis of the disciples' interest in power and greatness. There's, there's a lot of big words there, but if you unpackage it, he's, he's breaking it down and saying the disciples were so concerned with power and authority that the innocence of a child, it, it, it just it didn't even compute. Why bother? Why bother with this child, Jesus? Come on, let's move on. Let's move on to better things. But children for Jesus, little children for Jesus, and as described in the New Testament, are of much value. If you go on in that same passage, Matthew 19, 13, Jesus goes on to rebuke the disciples. And He says, hey, let the little children, let them come to Me. And don't forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And He laid His hands on them and He blessed the kids. He rebuked the disciples. He demonstrated that the kingdom of heaven is actually for children. It's given to children. It's designed for children, Jesus says. Entrance into my kingdom, eternal life with me, is designed for children. And the, the title in John that John so frequently cites, he got it later on as a disciple of Jesus. He understood what Jesus was saying. And in John chapter 1, excuse me, yeah, excuse me chapter 1 verse 12, John says this, he says, But as many as received Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God. It was a title of honor to John as he progressed in his understanding. It was a title of honor to be a child of God, not a title of disgust. Jesus again, He's invoking disgust. He's invoking disdain in the disciples. And now... What is he going to say? He's put the child in the middle of him. What is he going to say that's, that's going to throw him over the edge, that's going to really cause him to think? And what he does in verse 3 is he gives the disciples something to think about regarding entrance into the kingdom. He gives them a condition. A condition of entrance into the kingdom. A condition of entrance. You say a condition. A condition of entrance into eternal life? Well, I thought that Salvation was by grace alone, Neil. I thought that it was not by works. It is. Don't get me wrong. It is not this kind of condition that Jesus is going to give. He's not going to give a condition of works to enter the kingdom. What He is going to do is give a condition of perspective. A condition of mind. A condition of worldview that the disciples and all of us must have if we are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, without this perspective, without this worldview, this mindset, you will not enter. By no means will you enter. In the Greek, when he says by no means, it's ume, it's a double negative. He says, there's no way, don't even think about it, you cannot enter unless 
you are converted and become as a little child. Now, we have to reconcile this with some clear teaching in Scripture, don't we? I mean, the Scriptures are clear. John 6.40, that he who believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life. Galatians 2.16, a man is justified by grace. A man is justified, excuse me, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So we need to reconcile what Jesus is saying in 18.3 of Matthew with what he is saying in the rest of Scripture regarding entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And it can be done. And we're going to do it right now. Find, we're going to look at how to reconcile this condition with the rest of Scripture. Take a look very closely in your Bibles at verse 3. And we are going to analyze at this point in time, we're going to center in on one phrase. You are converted. You are converted. This word, this verb, you are converted, in Greek is strafo. It means to turn or to change. It, uh, in, in, excuse me, in Matthew 5.39, when you say turn the other cheek, that's strafo, turn the other cheek. It also has a salvation context about it. In John 12.40, it says that he, he, meaning, excuse me, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them, Jesus says. And that's in a more salvific context. So it can be to turn the cheek or to literally turn your life to God. Turn your life to God. And we're narrowing in on it right now. Strafo meaning to turn or to change. And here's what's most important. And I know this is, we're getting a little technical, but bear with me. We're not going to stay up in this technical zone. We're going to get more simple. But we need to understand this very clearly. It's used in the passive. The passive voice. Now, for you who remember grammar, we'll have a grammar lesson here. When I say, uh, when I say the boys bite the snake, the boys bite the snake, is that active or passive? Active, right. The boys bite the snake. They are biting the snake. That is an active voice. When I say the boys are bitten by the snake, is that active or passive? Passive. They are bitten. They are being bitten. They are not doing the biting themselves. They're not biting themselves. They are bitten by the snake. You say, well, you know, what, what's the significance of this? Go ahead and turn to the next slide there. Okay, ooh, he's on top of it. These are Bible translations on the left-hand side. English Standard Version, New International Version, the New Reformed Standard, the New Living Translation, which is gaining in popularity. And we have the New King James and the New American Standard. Now, you all have various versions in your laps right now. And I want you to be aware of the discrepancy here. In the ESV, it says, unless you turn. It's in the active voice. In the NIV, the NRSV, it says, unless you change. That's active. In the New Living, it says, unless you turn from your sins, which is really odd because the word sins is not even in the passage. Unless you turn from your sins. Well, that's, that's active. The only major Bible translations that translate this verb correctly is the New King James and the New American Standard. You say, well, Neil, come on. They, 
They must have their reasons. I mean, I, I'm not. You're not a linguist, Neil. I know. I'm not. You, you don't know all the intricacies of language. No, I don't. I'm a student of Greek, but I'm not a scholar of Greek. But I do know this for a fact. The scholars that translate this in the active are very aware of what they are doing. Very aware of it. In fact, they freely admit the verb is in the passive. And yet they translate it in the active. Now, speculate with me. Why? Why would they do such a thing? Why would they translate it in the active if it's a passive verb? Let me suggest that it's because of their theological systems. It's because of their theological systems that they are entrenched in. Let me say this very clearly. Certain theological traditions, certain theological traditions develop certain kinds of scholars that take those theological traditions and pick them up and put them on the words of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Certain theological traditions develop certain kinds of scholars that take those traditions and dump them on top of the words of Jesus Christ. And they do so with full knowledge, admitting that they're doing it. Now, I'm not, I'm not here as a witch hunt on Bible translations. I'm not saying throw away your NIVs. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is be very aware. Be very aware of your translation because it does make a difference. The New King James and the New American Standard are very what you would call wooden. That means that they, they don't interpret for you. They put it as it is. Other Bibles, especially the NIV and the New Living, which is, in my opinion, an awful translation, what they do is they interpret the Bible for you. And they put the words down, and it sounds a little bit easier. You start to understand it a little bit better. But when you come to passages like this, you completely miss the point because they're trying to get you to think in their theological system terms. Okay. Let's get back to the verb, though. I don't don't want to spend too much time on this. But know for a fact, this verb means to be converted. That they are converted, not that they convert themselves. You say, okay, well, why is this significant, Neil? Why is it significant that they are converted? Well, it begs the question, who's doing this conversion? Who needs to convert us to become as little children so that we can have eternal life? Who's doing the conversion, Neil? Or what's doing the conversion? And secondly, what are they converting us to? Well, I think that we can use deductive reasoning in this. I think it's pretty clear that I'm not the one doing the converting. I can't convert myself if it's in the passive, so I don't convert myself. Uh, the New Testament in John, uh, Matthew, or early parts of Matthew, it suggests, or excuse me, early parts of Luke, it suggests that John the Baptist was turning, strafo, he was turning people to the Lord. But I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. I think what Jesus has in mind here is, is the obvious answer, that God does the conversion in the person. More specifically, that the Holy Spirit does the converting of the person. The Holy Spirit does the converting. We are converted in the passive. We are converted by the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 2.29, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, circumcision of the heart, 
Excuse me. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. In the spirit. Romans 8, 3 and 4. Jesus condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to flesh, but according to the spirit. And I think most pointedly, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. Our gospel, Paul says, our gospel, this gospel of salvation, did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. He's saying when you receive that gospel, when the, excuse me, when the gospel message came to you, it came to you by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was actively influential in your turning to the Lord. A preparatory work. A preparatory functional work in you by the Holy Spirit to turn you to God. You say, does that mean the Holy Spirit saved me? No. No. Be very clear. The Holy Spirit does not do the faith. Man does the faith. For for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. Man does the faith. Man turns to God in faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who acts as the preparation, who acts to influence, to guide, to help, as he is described in Scripture, the helper, the counselor, the illuminator. What is the Holy Spirit converting us to? Good question. I think Jesus answers that. He says in the very same verse, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted by the Holy Spirit and become as a little child... So the Holy Spirit now is moving in us to push us toward this little child Jesus has put in the center of the circle. We're converted to become as little children. Hmm. Uh, This morning I I gave some Play-Doh to the kids. And uh, that was that was fun. That was that was good. A lot of those kids they wanted two, you know, and they they knew it was free, and so they could you know get a lot out of it. Um, the interesting thing is when you give a gift to a child, it's much different than giving a gift to an adult, isn't it? When you give a gift to a child, they they take it and they run with it and they go play with it. You hand a gift to a child, and they they might say thank you if they've been trained well, but that's about it. And then they will open it up and they will start playing with that gift. That's, that's just their nature. They want to play with the gift. They want to grab it, they'll take it, and they'll run out the door and play with it. Now contrast that. Contrast that with how adults receive a gift. Adults at Christmas or birthday party, they open up the gift and the first phrase out of their mouth is, oh, you shouldn't have. Oh my goodness, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you would spend so much money on me. Oh, what can I do to pay you back? What can I do to, to reimburse you for the gift that you gave me? Are you starting to see the irony? Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? You enter as a child, not as an adult, in perspective. You want to receive eternal life? You enter as a child, not as an adult, 
who thinks that you need to give something back to God. Know this very well. Eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest gift God has given to us. And up on the screen, if we receive this gift with the mindset that we must do something in order to retain it, or substantiate or prove our reception of it, then we have not understood it. Let me say that again. If we receive this gift of salvation with the mindset that we must do something to retain it, or substantiate or prove our reception of it, then we have not understood it. I'm hitting two theological systems up there in one. Some say, well, if you don't, if you don't continue, you're going to lose it. Wrong. So others say, well, if you don't demonstrate you have it, you never had it. Wrong. Jesus says it's as a child. Take the gift and go play with it. You can't pay me back. You can't reimburse me. That's why it's called grace. Mark 10:15 says, "Assuredly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it." So, re- review real quick. So we, we're all on the same page here. The condition, the condition is a condition of perspective. It's not a condition of works. It's a condition of mind. And the condition is that we are converted. We are converted by the Holy Spirit. What are we converted to? The mindset of a child. And if we have the mindset of the child, we recognize that we are powerless to save ourselves, that we can do nothing to reimburse God. And because of that mindset, we can believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life and have it. Fascinating. Fascinating how Jesus words that in 18.3. And there's no other way. Ume in Greek, double negative. No possible way of being saved unless you have this mindset. That's, that's a little scary. He says, you've got to think correctly about me. You've got to understand the gospel clearly. You can't do a thing but receive it. And what ama- here's, here's what amazes me. What amazes me is that there are churches today, and, and again, I, I'll, I get, I'll go off on a little tangent here, but it's, it's worthy to, be, to consider. There are churches today, and I've, I've read some of the things that they say on their websites or in their doctrinal statement, that in direct contradiction to the New Testament, they cast a, a bad light on child evangelism. They say, well, be careful if you're witnessing to a child. Be careful if you're going to tell Jesus to a child, if you're going to tell that message, because, you know, the child, he may not be ready for it. He may not understand it correctly. She might not understand all the conditions that are involved. 
in her childlikeness, boy, she might not get it. Look what one church said. This is taken from a church website. I'm not going to say what church. I'm not here to, to do that. But I am going to say that this is important to hear. Because this is coming out of mainstream churches. Take a look at what one church said. It said this on their website regarding child evangelism. Scripture indicates that children tend to be immature, naive, foolish, capricious, inconsistent and fickle, and unstable and easily deceived. Children often think they have understood the ramifications of a given commitment when they have not. Their judgment is shallow. Their ability to see the implications of their decisions is very weak. Despite the best of their intentions, they seldom have the ability to think far beyond today, nor do they perceive the extent to which their choices will affect tomorrow. This makes children more vulnerable to self-deception, and it makes it more difficult for parent to discern God's saving work in their hearts. For this reason, the church says, only when a child's stated convictions and beliefs are tested by circumstances in life as he matures, do parents begin to learn more conclusively his spiritual direction. And I say to that, as if they needed to know his spiritual direction. As if the parent is somehow needing to give the nod of approval. Yes, the child's been saved. This is sick. This is despicable. And this is coming out of a mainstream church today. It disgusts me. And why does it disgust me? Because Jesus said, you can't enter unless you are like a child. That is the antithesis of the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be deceived. Children can come to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, they're more apt to do so than you and I are. Because we have such adult, intellectual thinking. And you know, it, it really bothers me too. Because, well, today, um, today my first niece is due to be born. My, my sister Katie and her husband Josh are, having, are due to have their first baby today. And once we get... Once we get the call, we're going to head on up there and, and celebrate with them. And so this message and this what, what we showed on the screen really is impacting me today because it, it scares me. It scares me to think that although this child, her name is going to be Faith, although Faith is going to be brought up in a Christian home and by good Christian parents, and, and I am so excited to have the opportunity to witness to her, and I know her parents are going to witness to her, and they're going to give her the gospel, and I hope we do it on a daily basis until she comes to faith. I hope we do that. But it scares me to no end to think that someone, some pastor, or some church might recommend to my sister and brother-in-law, oh, you better not, you better not allow faith to hear that message quite yet. She's not ready. It, it bothers me so much to think that she could be withheld from the message. That they would take it from her. No one should do that. And I know her parents won't. And I know I won't. You don't withhold the message from children. That's who Jesus said it was designed for. 
And, uh, and one last thing. Some say, well, what about coercion, Neil? You, what, what if you coerce them into faith? What if you, what if you just, you, you, you're brainwashing them, you're coercing them, you're forcing them to believe? I, I guess my response to that is, is there any other way? Were you not coerced? Take away the negative connotations of the word. Were you not coerced? Were you not led to believe? Were you not given evidence for? Were you not shown through the Scriptures or from an authority of a pastor as he demonstrated to you why this is true? Were you not coerced into believing the message of salvation in Jesus Christ? Set aside our negative ideas of coercion and realize that we're all coerced. We're all impressed to believe. If I coerce a child into the truth, is that any less good or any... Is that evil? No. I'm impressing upon the child the truth of Scripture. How is that negative? You and I are coerced into faith. We make the faith. We, we initiate faith in Christ. But prior to that, we are being coerced. We are shown evidence. And just because a child needs less evidence does not make their faith invalidated. Just because they need less evidence, because they blatantly rely on the authority of their parents or the authority of their pastor, just because they have less evidence that's needed, doesn't mean they can't be saved. All right, let's move on. I'm off my tangent now. Go to verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. And here we come to the answer. Jesus is now going to answer the disciples' initial question. Verse 4. Therefore Jesus says, Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, just just a, a basic understanding of things in the text, we recognize that, well, the conditions for entrance in verse 3 and the conditions for greatness in verse 4 must be different or else Jesus wouldn't differentiate the two. So the conditions must be different. We enter by childlikeness, a childlike mindset. But we achieve greatness by something else. But Jesus seems to use the same language, humbles himself. Well, that's very similar to what he said in verse 3. Is he equating the two? No. He's not equating the two. He's still demonstrating a slight difference between entrance versus greatness. And I think that slight difference is is best spelled out as we look at Philippians chapter 2. Take a look at Philippians 2 up on the screen here. And in Philippians 2, it's speaking of Jesus humbling himself. And it says this, Being found, Jesus, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Notice the phraseology, humbled himself. In this verse, verses humbled himself in verse 4 that we're looking at. He humbled himself and what? Became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And what did God do? He highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in, the, in heaven and of those in earth and of those under the earth. So, humbled himself, same phraseology as 18.4 of Matthew, and... Obedience. Obedience. Here's Jesus' implication in verse 4 of Matthew 18. 
He's implying that your perspective that you now have, that you've been reminded of in verse 3, the perspective that you came to faith in Christ, that gave you eternal life, that allowed you to have eternal life, that perspective of a child, now put that perspective and put shoes on it. Obey me. Humbly obey me. Exercise your lowly status. Exercise your lowly status in life. Do acts of humbleness. And and what? And you'll achieve greatness. That's the implication that Jesus has for us in verse 4. There's a difference between entrance and inheritance, and that's what it is. Honor and greatness in the kingdom is bestowed upon those who have a perspective of a child and who then go on to act within that perspective, who act humbly. But reproof, correction, those least in the kingdom are those who exert pride, who exalt themselves. Oh, they'll get in the kingdom. You get in. You get into eternal life by believing in Christ. But you want to be great? You want to attain power? Excuse me. You want, you want to get authority from Christ in the kingdom? And scriptures are very clear. There will be different levels of authority, of reward given to believers. Make no mistake. We'll all get in by faith in Christ. But we will all be given rewards contingent upon us using our childlike perspective in action. You confused about that? Turn to 1 Corinthians 3.15 and you can see what it takes. It does take works to get reward. It takes faith to get entrance. As we conclude, um, I, there's, a, there's a story about my wife that I wanted to share. I like to talk about my wife and, and she's, she's a fun one to talk about. And when she was... When she was four, about four years old, uh, she was a little evangelist. She was a little evangelist. And she used to walk around the community pool uh, in their condominiums there, and, and she would go around and, and talk about Jesus all the time to these kids. And uh, her strategy of evangelism um, was quite unique. Uh, it was one that, that was very accurate to the teachings of the New Testament, but it was also one that was uh, tactless, to say the least. Uh, her strategy was, as she walked up to these little kids playing in the pool, she would say, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. Now, it's quite a strategy, isn't it? Now, I've, I've since done a lot of research on this strategy, and I've spent a lot of time and hours considering this strategy of hers and why it was effective and why it might not have been effective. And in, in my studies, I concluded two things, two things about Casey's evangelism strategy. Number one, that uh, she didn't make many friends at the pool that year. And number two, that Casey was entirely convinced of her faith in Jesus Christ that she was entirely convinced of her faith in Jesus Christ. She was convinced that if you didn't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. On the flip side, if you do believe in Jesus, she believed that you would go to heaven 
And that, my friends, is the message of the New Testament. That's the message of Jesus. She was a little child, and in her childlikeness, she believed the message. I want to leave you with three things as we close. Three things to consider. Uh, one thing to, to just remember, and then two things maybe to do. Um, the first is this. Jesus makes it simple for them. Jesus makes it simple for us, for anyone, to believe in Him. Believe in Him and receive eternal life. It's simple. And I have a quote. I just went out of order. Scott, back a slide. I have a quote there from Charlie Bing. He says this. He says, if you want somebody to be rescued, delivered, or saved, you make it simple for them. You make it as simple as possible so that as many as possible can be saved. That's why in emergencies, we dial 911. Not 911-1010-321. God wants people to be saved. And He designed His Gospel that way so that what? Even a child can believe. It's simple. Number one, Jesus makes it easy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, return to that childlike perspective. Return to that and you can enter. Number two, strive to maintain, maintain the humble childlike perspective with which you were saved. Now what I mean by that is, oftentimes we come to faith as a child, and many of us have, who are believers in Christ, we came as a child. I may not have been aware of it, but, but we, we came as, with the perspective that we, I can do nothing. But you know what happens later on? You start getting bad teaching. You start maybe hearing from a guy on the radio or someone else, and they start saying, you know, well, if you're not living it, you might not have it. Or maybe the teacher says, if, uh, if you're not living it, maybe you lost it. That's, that's wrong. That's wrong. Do all you can to maintain that perspective. Remind yourself daily, it is because I came as a child that I have eternal life. Because you can lose that perspective. You don't lose eternal life, but you can lose that perspective. I've lost it before, and I'm sure many of you have. Strive to maintain that perspective. You know why? Number three, if you do so It'll help you to put feet on your childlike perspective. That you will demonstrate humility in action. With that perspective, you can then go on to serve Christ in the way that you ought to. And in in so doing, you will achieve greatness in the kingdom. Isn't that fantastic? It all starts with that childlike perspective. Jesus makes it simple. Believe in Him. Have eternal life. Strive to maintain that childlikeness. Strive every day to maintain that. And three, put feet on that perspective. Walk out of here and realize, as a child, 